Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the LSE, and I'm, I'm delighted to welcome you all to our discussion this evening. Um, our discussion is sponsored by three organisations, the Ralph Miliband Program, but also LSE Ideas, the LSE's foreign policy think tank, and the Feelin United States Centre, devoted to the study of the United States. And the focus of our event is going to be a brand new book by Professor Michael Cox, The Agonies of Empire, American Power from Clinton to Biden. If you got your Financial Times last weekend, you'll have seen it was given a, a very nice review notice, pointing out how fluently it was written and what a nice book it was, not just for students and scholars, but one that would have a reach out into the wider interested public. Well, the book seeks to explain why the United States has found it increasingly difficult to exert its influence around the world in the last uh, few presidencies. And to discuss this, um, we brought together an eminent panel of three scholars. Let me just introduce you to them now. So first of all, we have uh, Michael Cox himself. Mick is Emeritus Professor of International Relations here at the LSE. And he's also a co-founder of LSE Ideas. And he served in various capacities at Chatham House, at the Nobel Institute in Oslo, for the European Consortium for Political Research, at the Centre for Strategic Studies in Canberra, and also, I should say, as a much-valued member of the steering committee of the Ralph Miliband program itself. He is the author or editor of a phenomenal number of books. Um, depending on where you look, you find it's either two dozen or, or more. There's absolutely a prodigious amount of scholarship there, a number of which have come out in multiple editions. And they deal often with questions to do with the Cold War or with US foreign policy, but also with questions of empire, the ethics of international relations, democratization, and even recently, a history of the LSE itself. Our second panelist is Peter Trubovitz. He's a professor of international relations and the director of the Phelan US Center here at the LSE, and he's held visiting posts at a number of institutions around the world. Princeton, Harvard, San Diego, Chile, Mexico and Beijing. And he too has written highly regarded books dealing with American strategy, its relationship to politics, and American foreign policy more generally. And in addition, he's a widely respected commentator on US politics in general. Our third speaker is Caroline Kennedy Pipe. She is Professor of International Relations and International Security at Lothbury University, having previously been Professor of War Studies at the Universities of Hull, Warwick and Sheffield. She's recently been President of the British International Studies Association. She's been a visiting fellow at the Rothermere Centre at the University of Oxford. And she's a special advisor to the House of Commons Committee on Defence. And she too has published widely on questions to do with Russia and its foreign policy, the Cold War, terrorism, drones, women as combatants, and issues to do with urban warfare. 
Well, at the moment, we can see two of our speakers because our third speaker, uh, Carolyn Kennedy-Pipe, is having trouble with her picture, but she is here with us. And we do have our three speakers to contribute um, the ideas, which are, after all, what we're most interested in. And each of our speakers is going to talk for, you know, 12, 15 minutes. And then after that, we'll have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. Just before we start, can I emphasise that you need to put the questions into the Q&A box. And of course, we'll try and pick out a number of those, uh, but we can't necessarily deal with all of them. Do say who you are and where you're from, because it's of interest to our general audience. So before we start um, and turn to Professor Cox, can I just ask you to sort of join me metaphorically in welcoming our panel to our event tonight? Professor Cox. You're on mute. Yeah, no, I just realized I made the cardinal mistake. Anyway, so firstly, thank you very much, uh, Robin, for those uh, very nice and generous comments. Uh, I'd like firstly to thank my, my publisher, uh, Bristol University Press, which has done, I think, a wonderful job bringing this book out. Uh, so thank you to Bristol University Press, who have been very supportive throughout the process. The publishers often get a very bad rap. I'm trying to give one a very good rap, and I think they need a, they need a good rap these days. Uh, I'd also like to thank everybody on the Ralph Miliband Committee and the programme more generally. I've been associated, proudly associated with the Ralph Miliband programme for many, many years, going back a long time. I may even be the longest serving member on that committee. I don't know, Robin, but it's been wonderful serving on that committee in, in celebration and commemoration of one of the great professors of the, of the LSE, the very great uh, Ralph Miliband, um, whom I actually did meet on a couple of occasions. So I, I can actually say I met the great man, but it's been wonderful serving on that committee with, with his family as well. And that's been a terrific privilege for me. And then last but by no means least to Peter Trubovitz, Caroline, old friends, good friends. And as you pointed out, Robin, you know, well-established scholars who made international reputation. So thank you to Peter and thank you to Caroline. Even if I can't see you, Caroline, I, I, I know your voice, but thank you very much again, all of you. Let me start with a very simple question. What's in the book? And I'm not going to make this too much about the book, although I'm bound to say something about it. What are the main arguments in it? Well, what's in the book, in a sense, is about nine chapters. And the way I've organised it, very simply, somewhat conventionally as well, I, I suppose one might argue, I've done it through precedents, partly because that was slightly easier to do. It gives a clear chronology, which I think is always important, one thing after the other. It's quite important to know that. Also, I think um, because presidents in the American system do define to a very large degree, not the power of the United States, but the strategies and the policies of the United States. So I think it's entirely legitimate to take that take that route. So I start a long time back, of course, with uh, uh, Bill Clinton, two terms, 92 to 2000. Um, I first wrote something about him back then. I wrote a short book for Chatham House. Uh, we then get to the Bush presidency, which, of course, is very much defined in a very different world uh, by 9-11 by and what happened. The great, one of the, another one of those great unexpected events which uh, reset and, and redefined uh, U.S. foreign policy for good or ill um, for the next eight years with particular emphasis and stress on terrorism and very much on the Middle East. I then deal uh, with a very different president, again, a Democratic president, shape of President Obama a two-term president, a very different president, both to Clinton in many ways, but also very, very different to, um, to President G.W. Bush. Then there's a couple of chapters, too, on Trump. I couldn't avoid Trump, of course, goes without saying. 
I try to explain Trump. As it's easy to criticize Trump, and I suppose most people at the LSE would. Uh, but nonetheless, I think very important to understand what, what caused it, what, what brought it about, uh, and to understand that maybe we maybe sometimes we overfocus on Trump as the cause of all the current problems rather than a manifestation and the symptoms of some deeper problems in, 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 in the world more generally, not just in the United States. And then finally, I deal briefly, but as, as fast as I could, with the Biden, with the Biden election and, and what Joe Biden has been doing. Of course, I couldn't bring it completely up to date because although we always like to think we can predict the future, and I do say a lot about Russia in the book, by the way, and I do say a lot about Putin and the way America tried to deal with Putin, both particularly during the Clinton years and then during the Obama, and then of course, during the controversial Trump years. Uh, nonetheless, I, I, I can't say that I, I, I say a lot about the Ukraine war because obviously it, it began, but I think I do try and explain the background to what's happened in Russia. And I think I said to you, Peter, some time ago, I started life as a Sovietologist, and therefore I was very interested in what happened after the Soviet Union. And I thought there was too much in the book originally on Russia. I'm, I'm, I, as I said in another debate, we had you know, maybe think there's probably not enough because there's now so much focus on on that. So that broadly gives you an idea of how I've structured the book and why I've structured it in the way. But look at the title; it's dramatic. Um, it's called Agonies of Empire, and I suppose therefore the thrust of my argument isn't to underestimate American power. And indeed, I still think the United States remains the most powerful state in the world, the most powerful country in the world, in spite of all its challenges. And I, in a sense, hesitate to get involved in the decline debate, but I still don't buy into the argument, and I haven't done for many years, into the notion of American decline. But clearly, for different reasons, both domestic and, and international, the United States still by far and away, in my view, the most powerful state in the world, is confronting enormous challenges. Uh, and, and what we're seeing today in Ukraine is maybe the last, last of many challenges that uh, the United States has faced. It faced one actually only six months ago when it withdrew from Afghanistan. So we've been bookended you know, by both a withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was perceived as a major, as a major defeat for the United States. It certainly it was a chaotic withdrawal at least. Um, and, and then we're, we're now facing an entirely new crisis, which I think is gonna redefine world politics in dramatic ways, what is happening in Russia and Ukraine. So I can't say I predicted this war, and I certainly, I don't think many people did, but I certainly, I think, tried to provide some background on why Russia has evolved in the way in which it has. I suppose the big picture I try to paint, or the big questions I try to answer, is you start with high hopes. You start with, if you like, the defeat of the Soviet Union, to put it bluntly, the retreat of communism, the unipolar moment, as it later became called by IR scholars, the moment when globalization was driving all before it under a president who very systematically pushed uh, globalization uh, as a means of both prosperity and indeed a, a foundation, as he believed it, of, of political international, international peace. And I suppose the question is, whatever happened to those high hopes? Uh, you know, what happened to the end of history moment, that term that was used by Francis uh, Fukuyama? Whatever happened to the unipolar moment? Are we still in it? Whatever happened to the new American century? Remember a number of books were talking about a new American century towards the end of the 1990s. And some were even talking then, and I think I may have been one of them, um, about an American empire. And, and, and I don't mind using that term empire. I, I use it loosely. I, I don't get too hung up on the term. 
But a lot of people today would say, well, talking of an empire today looks, uh, you know, a little bit old hat. It's passe. That's no longer where we are. But that's where we were. That's where we were, certainly in the first 10 years after the end of the Cold War, I think it'd be fair to say. And the question is, what's happened over the last 20 years? Now, a great writer on international relations called Edward Halleck Carr, E.H. Carr, uh, whom I've written about again. Thanks for mentioning, uh, Robin. But, you know, Carr talked of a 20-year crisis between 1919 and 1939. It's a very great book, very influential book, a classic of IR. Has America been experiencing a 20-year crisis since... 2001. I'm not quite sure we should use that term, but it's certainly gone through a period of 20 years of turbulence and challenge. And if you kind of then list the things that have happened, you know, you begin with 9-11, uh, you continue with the invasion of Iraq, highly contested uh, invasion, as indeed it was, and opposed by, by one president later on, of course, President Obama, and with consequences, which I think were severe. You could say it continues with the 2008 financial crisis, um, which brought Obama into office. Essentially, there are other factors, too. But I think the financial crash of 2008 did a lot to bring Obama in, into the White House. You could say then Trump, again, is a manifestation of a crisis in America because he attacked so much of what was perceived to be fundamental to America's grand strategy. Its view of the world was so fundamentally upturned and turned upside down by President Trump. And, and then, of course, you end, as, as I indicated earlier on, Robin, with the Afghanistan withdrawal. Now, of course, there may have been good reasons in the end to get out of Afghanistan, but we all saw the pictures. It looked like Saigon 1975 all over again, when people, desperate people, Afghans trying to get out uh, through Kabul airports in, in those terrible series. And again, that was seen as another indication of a crisis of American power. You, you mentioned my good friend Gideon Rack when he actually started talking. Is this the beginning now of, a, of the post-American world, which people have been talking about, by the way, for the last 10 years? So there's nothing new in that particular debate. And then, of course, we come to the current crisis facing, facing the US and indeed facing Ukraine, facing Europe and facing Russia today. So it, 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 it's, I suppose in some ways it is, a, it is a story of high hopes not realised dreams that were not uh, fully, fully, fully realized. The end of history, not exactly working out the way the Fukuyama, the liberal order, as he talked about it, the, the fundamental crisis of liberalism. And the unipolar moment, of course, was another illustration of that. America would remain dominant within the world forever. And the people will buy in to that particular order as well. Even those who have been previously what I call recalcitrant states like Russia and China would become responsible stakeholders within that system and globalization as an economic order would raise all boats together although it would necessarily have losers the winners would outstrip the losers and the consequences of globalization would be overall positive for the world economy whereas i think it's been far more far more disturbing so the the the, the big question then and i i'll be brief on this because i, I want to hear what my colleagues have to say on this i i, I simplify the argument if, if i could just for point purposes of presentation, but I kind of put forward four main arguments, I think, why, I would say what's gone wrong, you might want to pose it like that, but maybe four arguments as to where we might start thinking about where the agony comes from, if you like. I suppose in a more philosophical way, Robin, I think I'd kind of say a hubris, it's an old, old word derives, you know, from Greek, you know, having too much power, too much confidence. Can we say that 
America, in a sense, won two greater victory back in 1989 or 1991 and didn't think it could ever be challenged within the international. I think the Iraq war, for instance, there's lots of arguments about why it came about, but I think it came about because America thought it could do it. And in some senses, let's say, get away with it. And I think there was a kind of hubris which uh, it began to evaporate, certainly after 2001 and certainly after the financial crash of 2008. But, you know, feeling you, you can run the world, be the world, make the world, reshape the world in your own image, and maybe that's overstating what America thought it was doing, nonetheless carries within it certain dangers. And uh, this is a, quite a, one of the great lessons of international history, the study of which proves that if you think you're going to win everything, in the end, you're going to lose quite a lot. Um, the second aspect of it, I suppose, brings me back to globalization, which about which I do discuss a bit, quite a lot, certainly in the first chapter dealing with Clinton and then going on to the 2008 crisis. I, I think Clinton genuinely believed, as, as a good liberal, he would, that uh, you know, globalization would drive all before it, all boats would be lifted, poverty would be reduced in many parts of the world, America would benefit, the West would benefit, China would benefit, India would benefit, everybody would be sucked into this huge economic new order. Um, well, it did, it did create a lot of wealth. It certainly has created a lot of prosperity. It certainly helped China rise. Paradoxically, a Western economic order has helped China rise. It certainly helped India develop. I think that's also the case. But, and I think this is the deeper thing about, in, and, and I think it was, um, who was it? It was one great writer in 1997, Danny Roderick, who said, you know, we're, we're gonna lead to, we might lead to greater economic integration but we're going to see deeper social fragmentation within societies, particularly within Western societies. And I think, again, that, is, that has been manifest, a kind of crisis within the West as much as a, a crisis of American power itself. And I think, Peter, you'll talk about that, I hope, anyway, when we get to the whole question of polarisation within the United States. It may indeed have deeper, wider roots than just American roots, but it has American roots as well. But I just wonder again, whether or not the crisis we're facing, which I think is manifest in the United States today, is also a crisis within the system and within the West more generally, so an uncertainty about what is the West and whether the West really represents the future in a world that many believe is gonna to move to Asia and move to the East, which of course brings me to the next point, is that has there been a basic shift of power to the East, uh, the rise of an Asian century, as many writers have talked about, which has it, been beneficial, obviously, to Asia. Many people in the West have welcomed it because it's made a lot of people a lot of money, many markets and all the rest of it. Nonetheless, has this shift to the East, Easternization, to quote Gideon Rack title, one of Gideon Rackman's excellent books, Easternization, has that again done, done something to erode the self-confidence uh, of the West, that they no longer are going to run the world. And maybe that's also part and parcel of the of the discussion we have to have. And then two final points, just to quickly throw in, some would even argue that liberalism is the problem, has been the problem. And certainly important influential writers like John Mearsheimer and others have said, really the problem was is liberal hubris. The idea that you could create a liberal world order was always an illusion. Trying to make people like us was always an illusion. And what liberalism has led to in a sense is some of the many problems we're facing today. A crisis of the liberal order should not be so surprising given that liberalism itself, according to John Mearsheimer and others, is the problem, it, that is the problem itself. Finally, of course, we, the, the, and this of course brings us back to where we are today, certainly with the rise of China and of course what's happening between Russia and, and Ukraine. Where did we, where did, where did, where did or where could and 
where might the West and the United States have fitted in what we might, what would now call revisionist states. And what I try and deal with in the book is the various attempts by the US, mainly the US, because it's a book on the US and on US foreign policy, the degree to which uh, the attempts were made to bring in, you know, the two outsider states, if I can call them that, um, one post-communist quite clearly in the shape of Russia, and one clearly still run by the Communist Party in the shape of China. And, and, and we might want to open that up for a debate. Was that ever achievable? You know, from an IR realist point of view, you'd say, well, that was always a, a utopian dream. You could never bring in states because states are rising powers are going to always challenge the order. Again, that's something that John Mearsheimer has always argued. And, that, and the states around the world, like Russia, simply were not going to be incorporated into a Western liberal order because they were opposed to that Western liberal order and indeed have combined together, particularly over the last five to six years, working together, China and Russia, to challenge that liberal order and to challenge America's position of dominance within that order. Maybe that's partly what we're seeing being played out, some would argue today, in Ukraine. So there are many reasons we can explain in, in broad terms, Robin, to bring my comments to a very rapid conclusion. I'll end with two paradoxes, if I could. The paradox of victory and the paradox of power, if I might use those terminologies. The paradox of victory, in some ways, and I think Peter has written about this so well, is you beat the Soviet Union, but you lose a clear enemy. And, and the Cold War, for all of its costs and downsides and dangers, and they were very real, nonetheless, it, it kind of solved a lot of problems, we might put it, Peter, both at home within America and for American alliances. And I just wonder that the, the victory itself produces its own problems of not having a, a clear, what I call, global north against which to oppose and to bring about consensus within America itself. I know you've written about this, Peter, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about what I call the paradox of victory. And also the paradox of power. America still retains huge, vast amounts of power. Whatever happened in Afghanistan, you know, even what happened in Iraq, even after the 2008 financial crisis, we're still looking at an extraordinarily powerful state within the world, which may be facing all the challenges I've met, but we still got to confront the simple fact, um, and one that some people don't either like or, or don't even agree with, that th this enormous power. So what happens to America, therefore, is of enormous significance, not only for Americans and within America itself, but for the rest of the world. You know, Basically, in, in some sense, the old slogan is that if when America catches cold, everybody else is going to get double pneumonia. Well, what America does or does not do has enormous significance for the rest of the world, as we are seeing being played out in the great crisis unfolding between Russia and Ukraine. So with those comments, I'll, I'll conclude. I hope I, I took up my full 15 minutes, as I thought I would bound to, but I'm really looking forward to what Peter has to say and, and then Caroline. Thanks very much, Robin. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Cox. So now to Professor Trubovitz. Great. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Robin. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's great to be here on the platform today with, with you, with Mick and, and Caroline, and to have an opportunity to, um, to discuss Mick's wonderful new book on, on, um, on US foreign policy since the Cold War. So let me say, let me just begin like right up front by saying that I highly recommend the book. Um, really to anyone who wants to understand um, the state of America in the world today and how it got here. Um, it, it really, the book has everything that 
you know, those of us who've been reading Mick for a long time have come to expect of Mick Cox's writings about the United States. It's got a great historical narrative. It's not just one thing after another, as he said at the outset, <laughs> that skillfully weaves together, I think, um, very large international structural developments with a deep understanding of America and its, um, and its presidencies and politics. And I think a, a knack for being able to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to describing the evolution of US foreign policy. So, you know, it's, it's well worth the purchase price. I encourage people to, uh, to pick up a copy. It's, it's, it's very well done. Um, the book's core message, I think, and Mick alluded to this, um, is that the end of the Cold War created really as many challenges for the United States as, as opportunities. And he called this kind of the paradox of, of, of victory and the paradox of, of, of power. America had great power and no rival to speak of, but the collapse of the Soviet Union with the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, it really no longer had a, a clear-eyed mission, a, a clear overriding international purpose. And you know, the, the, the problem was actually captured very nicely by um, an old uh, advisor to several Soviet uh, leaders, a guy named uh, uh, Georgi Arbatov, who shortly before the Soviet Union fell, told or warned an American audience, he said, in quotes, we're gonna do a terrible thing to you. We're gonna deprive you of an enemy. And much I think of a mixed book is, is about really how successive presidents running from Clinton um, to Biden um, responded to the geopolitical vacuum um, that the Soviet collapse um, left behind and the various developments and events that have intervened along the way, you know, from the September 11th attacks to the 2008 global financial crisis um, to the uh, COVID um, pandemic. And what emerges, I think, in mixed telling is less the kind of unified, liberal, hegemonic strategy that, that John Mearsheimer and others describe than an America that is, as Mick points out, as it just said a moment ago, immensely powerful, but also at the same time, internally divided and confused about its purposes. And as a result, where some scholars have seen great consistency in US foreign policy over the past 30 years, I think when you read Mick's book, what he sees is more variation from one president to the next. And so one of the very nice things about the way that it's organized by presidency is that's drawn out for the reader. That, that is really um, nicely captured. Um, and, I, and I think this portrait of American statecraft since the Cold War um, is a compelling one. Um, I share many of the 
you know, the, the ideas or the arguments that he develops, I, I think are, are, are spot on. But I also think that the book begs um, some important questions that I offer in the spirit of um, spurring um, discussion this evening um, about the book, but also uh, the historical moment that we find ourselves in today. And one question is whether the war that Putin has unleashed on Ukraine has brought this long post-Cold War, this 30-year crisis, if you will, to a thundering end, one crisis bringing another one to an end. And if so, what the vacuum is going to be filled with? I mean, will it be filled by cascading nationalisms? Will it be filled by an emboldened European Union, perhaps with Germany at the helm that stretches further eastward? Or by a circling of the wagons by China and a, a much diminished, weakened um, Russia? And how might all of this impact um, the United States, US foreign policy going forward? I mean, you know, will the forces that Putin's actions have set in motion produce the kind of um, programmatic and lasting shift in US grand strategy that frankly 30 years of geoeconomics, democracy promotion and America first did not? I think that's a big question out there right now. And, and a lot of people, are, you know, see the American response and the Western response as suggesting the two Putin's um, war, that seeing this kind of first month and, and the additional um, actions that were laid out um, today uh, in Brussels um, as an indication that the United States and the West have kind of got their mojo back and there's gonna be a, 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 a real um, clear, purposeful, <laughs> programmatic policy going forward. Um, and I think that's worth scrutinizing. A second question actually follows from this, which is whether or not the Soviet threat was the glue that held American statecraft together. And this, of course, is the implication of Arbatov's famous quip, and to some extent, the argument that Mick develops in Agonies of Empire and the point about the paradox of, of victory. But there's more to the story, I think, and I don't think Mick will disagree with this, but there's, there's more to the story of American purposefulness during the Cold War than geopolitical imperatives, important though they were. And Mick has written about this and I've written about this, and, and, uh, but I'm gonna kind of argue with both Mick and myself here right now and say that one can make a strong case that the reason that American statecraft was so much more consistent during the Cold War than it has been since is that American leaders during the East-West struggle were very careful to balance international commitments with a commitment 
to economic security and expanding um, inclusiveness um, at home. Um, and there were several reasons for this, but what makes it relevant, I think, to the story of American statecraft that Mick tells is that this commitment to social democracy, broadly defined social welfare, also weakened in the United States in the 1990s, as it did across much of the advanced industrialized world. Of course, it began back in the 1980s with Thatcher and Reagan, but it accelerated in the 1990s and it was being pushed by center left, not center right politicians by that point in time, whether it was Clinton or Tony Blair or Schroeder um, in Germany. In the American case, it was part and parcel of Clinton's turn to what was called at, at, the point, at that point in time, geoeconomics as a replacement for geopolitics. And that Mick really does a great job you know, describing in the book. And that you know, for all their many differences actually continued under Bush and Obama and even Trump. Indeed, like the absence of the geopolitical threat over the past 30 years, I would argue that this is the other great development that shaped American foreign policy, that has shaped American foreign policy since the Cold War, and that it has led to a kind of hollowing out of the dom domestic social contract that previously had been the undergirding or the bedrock of America's commitment to the liberal order that presidents from FDR on worked so hard to expand and nurture. And there is, I think, alas, a kind of final question or point here too um, that follows from this. Could it be that Biden's response to the geopolitical forces that Putin's war has set in motion however strategically sound um, it may appear right now won't be enough to put America's foreign policy back on an even keel. For if, if Arbatov was only half right and it takes more than an enemy to get Americans to consistently and programmatically buy into ambitious foreign policies. It does raise the question of whether we could be in for something, something worse than what we've seen the past 30 years, namely an America that is maybe unwilling or incapable domestically, not because it doesn't have the power, the raw relative material power, but because it doesn't have the political will or the perhaps even more importantly, given what we have seen over the last five to six years in the United States, the domestic capacity to rise to the international challenge. And I think maybe on that, I think I'm within my time limit here. I think Robin, I'll leave it there and we can turn it over to Caroline. 
Great. Thank you very much, Peter. So, yes, indeed, we turn now to Caroline Kennedy Pipe, who, who is here, and welcome, and let's um, hear from her. Thank you, Robin, and apologies that my camera uh, won't work, but um, Mick, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, reading Mick's book before it was um, published, um, I pondered very much Mick's career, of course, um, very much, I think, like many of us, a great admirer of Russia until recent events, uh, and if not of Russian politics, of the Russian people, uh, literature, culture, and everything that it has offered uh, the world. So today I feel um, very sad about obviously everything that is occurring, but pondering and reading Mick's book, one of its many virtues um, actually is the lessons it contains for our own troubled times when we again have a major war in Europe. Mick talks about uh, the lessons of history and very recent history and reflects very much on the legacies of the Cold War uh, between the opposing blocs. And of course, we have only just had the 30th anniversary of the end of the Soviet Union a humiliation very much on the mind of Mr. Putin uh, over the last few months, as he brooded on the many obvious geopolitical limitations which have been visited upon Russia. Mixed chapters on Clinton, uh, a president who was notoriously close uh, to Boris Yeltsin, tell us a very uh, great deal about getting Russia wrong, uh, whatever the intentions may have been. Um, throughout the 1990s, and especially, I think, the false reading of the system which was developing uh, under both Yeltsin and, of course, his successor, Putin. And recently released uh, material and documents from the Presidential Library um, in Arkansas actually really reinforces Mick's um, analysis of what happened uh, during the Yeltsin-Clinton years, with Yeltsin warning Clinton quite openly about the dangers of humiliating Russia. And indeed, in one fascinating document, Yeltsin war warns Clinton that there are those uh, around him in the Kremlin who would have the ambition to retake Crimea um, and would do so. Um, nonetheless, uh, Yeltsin recommends uh, Putin uh, to Clinton. And really what we have, it seems to me, is, and I'll be very interested to hear Mick's views, uh, Bill Clinton deciding to ignore the type of advice that Yeltsin was giving him about the state of uh, the Soviet system, about the nature of the rivalries within the Kremlin. And in particular, warning of the dangers of encircling Russia with the expansion of NATO. Now, Mick also, in his book, he ends, in fact, uh, the book with talking about the importance of local politics in the making of American foreign policy. And despite all the verbal promises given to Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO would not expand uh, to the east and onto Russia's truncated borders, uh, Clinton, of course, oversees um, the integration of Poland, the Czech Republic and Hungary into the NATO 
alliance. And one might think that a canny operator like Bill Clinton had his um, eye set not on what Russia and how Russia would respond, but rather the Eastern Central diaspora who would bring him again and help win him the White House. So mix, I think, fusion of the imperatives of local and regional politics to any president seeking to take the White House seemed to me almost at times in his narrative, Trump, if you like, any commitment towards the liberal international order. And of course, as we know, the March 1999 NATO intervention bombing Serb forces in Kosovo infuriated the Kremlin. That um, Primakov actually turned his plane around from heading to talks with the United States when he got the news of this. But the question this evening is not just about my own particular hobby horse about misreading Russia, but also about the shape that US foreign policy took after 9-11. Um, as Mick knows only too well, the late Nicholas Renger um, and I wrote a piece um, after 9-11 in which we argued that 9-11 was indeed a shock to the system, but didn't fundamentally alter any of the basic geopolitics of international relations and the way that we should perceive great power rivalry. I think one hugely important question is why after 9-11, the US took its eye off the strategic ball, becoming embedded in unwinnable wars in the Middle East. And Mick makes uh, much of this obsession with a global confrontation with various militants, jihadists and Al-Qaeda, permitting, if you like, an obsession with the United States away from its core interests. And I couldn't agree more looking back at the hubris uh, prior to the invasion of Iraq. Of course, it wasn't just Iraq that the United States believed it had the ability to reshape. It was Lebanon, it was Libya, it was a much wider Middle East. And the arrogance of power, if we can call it that, um, I think took the United States down the wrong pathway. In this period of 20 years of war in the Middle East, um, that obsession, as I said, with a global war on terror, uh, the minute detail, the incredible expenditure of those wars, and then, of course, the misreading of the Arab Spring, um, meant not only that Russia could regroup under Vladimir Putin and do so crossing many red lines, whether it was in Georgia, whether it was in Crimea, or indeed in the Syrian war, in which Mr. Putin proved himself adept at frustrating any American um, attempts at regime change. And only this weekend, of course, we've seen the pictures of Mr. Assad on his international trip around the Middle East. And again, the reshaping of Middle Eastern politics. So Russia regroups. Russia finds itself uh, in the popularity of Mr. Putin, at least until this war. And of course, in 1991, 80% of Russians polled um, 
were very favorably inclined towards the United States. Only a decade later, that position was entirely reversed. So that breakdown, um, I think the question which is explained in um, Mick's book is how did the US get global politics wrong? The misreading of Russia, I think is certainly one thing, but this also, I think misreading of the alliance that has emerged, however durable it might prove to be between China and Russia. And we need only think of those conversations in and at the Beijing Olympics to see very clearly that with economic sanctions, with the isolation of Russia post 2014, a different kind, a different tilt, a different regrouping has emerged. India, Pakistan, China refusing to outright condemn Russia. And, and what does that mean in terms of where Mick leaves his book just on the eve of that reshaping of the European balance of power? Quite rightly pointing out in his own talk that this is a tremendous moment in terms of reshaping both the European security architecture, but more broadly an understanding of the international system. Now in 1991, some perhaps we could call them idealists, perhaps we might call them wrong-headed liberals, talked about some of the future challenges uh, that a Westphalian system might have to confront um, when dealing with Russia. Russia has always rejected the post-1991 Western consensus of a certain reading of sovereignty, a certain reading of geopolitics. And I think because we have misread Russia, uh, the American foreign policy elite, we're faced with really very serious consequences in terms of what will now happen in terms of the European architecture. The Sino-Russian alliance rather than so Sino-Soviet alliance that dates me is almost the perfect storm, it seems for me. The re-emergence of Germany, uh, which will occur as a major uh, European military uh, power. Uh, the ripping up, if you like, of the Russian relationship with Germany through the cancellation of Nord Stream means it's vitally important that the United States leads in terms of not just NATO, but rather than endlessly talking about a tilt to the Pacific, to see that actually the Pacific, uh, the Asian, Eurasian worlds are in the Russian view and always have been, as well as the Chinese, uh, intimately linked. A tilt away from one doesn't mean that that tilt will be followed by the Russians and the Chinese. So to see the war in Ukraine as coming out of Putin's ambitions to create a Eurasian security buffer is I think something that American analysts make brilliantly shows under every president um, has got wrong. And there's something else I think that's um, worth uh, us discussion. The Chinese of course have been buying up ports uh, all around the world. Um, the European dependency for its energy on Russia, will that be filled by a new dependency on the United States, who can also make enormous profits through supplying the Europeans? 
or is it, and perhaps uh, I'm now too cynical about this, is it that uh, the Chinese will also enter the European and have entered the European energy market? So it's not, I think, uh, and the late Fred Halliday, of course, wrongly predicted in the 1980s, the demise of the United States. It's not so much the demise of the United States, it's internal fracturing, it's obvious um, problems in terms of race, class, economy. It's whether the United States will be outmaneuvered, not by two separate problems, but by one problem, which is that of the Kremlin and Beijing having moved much closer. That is the threat. I think, to uh, not US hegemony, but certainly US influence in the world. And I'll stop there. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Oh, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Kennedy Pipe. Um, well, it's, it's time now for some questions and discussion. Um, do keep um, sending your questions in. Do say who you are and where you're from so we can announce it um, as we select them um, to put to the audience. I'm going to start with a question for Professor Cox from uh, Kevin, who's from Birmingham who asks, to what extent do you feel that US foreign policy in the last 30 years has shifted from Europe to other parts of the world? And how do you think the current Ukraine crisis will influence it moving forward? Yeah, thanks, thanks uh, Kevin. I'll try and be brief because there's so many great questions out there and I, I'd love to come back and talk to, to Caroline and Peter, but we'll leave that aside for the moment. Well, in some ways the Cold War privileged Europe, yeah. It did. You know, the primary threat was seen to be the Soviet Union. It was a military threat, NATO, uh, and there was the Warsaw Pact. Therefore, the primary, the primary emphasis of the United States, the primary, but not the only, and I think we've got to make a distinction there, was, 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 was towards Europe, which in a sense was highly privileged in that sense by the Cold War. And obviously, huge changes ever since. Uh, the rise of Asia, the emergence of China as a major challenge and a, ma and a major economic player in the international system. All that has meant that Europe's privileged position, insofar as there was one, has, has clearly come under some challenge. The, the, my answer, however, would still be that America, I mean, this gets back to the question of America as a global power. I mean, the, the consequence of World War II that America faced both, not just southwards to South America, the old Monroe Doctrine, going back to 1823, but also not only face uh, across the Atlantic to Europe, but also faced across the Pacific, towards Japan and then towards communist China, which saw as one of saw as part of that relationship with Russia in the old days, if you like, the Cold War days. So in that sense, I mean, I think the United States has always had a global perspective. Um, uh, even if you look through the work of people like George F. Kennan, he said, look, the first place we've got to kind of protect and develop from communism is going to be Western Europe, later Europe, of course. Uh, it's going to have to be Asia, Japan, etc. the threat there, and also the Middle East because of oil and, and various raw materials coming out of there. So in some ways, I'd always say that the United States, I think, has always had a global, a globalist 
perspective. And it's an interesting question which has also been raised, and I'll, I'll make this a quick point but end. Some have now said, well, because there's so much focus on what's going on in Europe at the moment, obviously as a consequence of this particular war, I mean, today or yesterday was it, President Biden was in Poland, this therefore is going to take away America's focus in on Asia. I, I, I don't buy into that really. <coughs> if anything, what's happening between Russia and Ukraine is, is in some sense making the United States look even more closely at what is happening in Asia Pacific. And particularly, of course, with, with, with relationship between China and Taiwan. The other thing I'd simply say is simply look at America's global reach. You know, it's global economic reach. It's the biggest foreign director investor in the world. It sits at the heart of the world financial system, uh, it, more so than ever today, actually. The dollar still remains, you know, the primary currency in the world. And, and, and then there's New York and decisions made by the Federal Reserve which shape all of our lives. So it remains a global power. The real question to me is not Europe or Asia or Europe and somewhere else, but how effective it has been in developing strategies and policies towards the world as a whole. And, and as I try and show in the book, it's been effective in some regards, but as Caroline, I think, has already indicated, following some of the arguments I make, you know, there's been some real problems in that as well. But it remains the global power with the global reach. I think we've got to conceive of America in that particular way. That's why I would anyway. Thanks for the question. Okay, and um, do do keep your thoughts about the panelists' um, points, and we, we do want to come back to that at the end. We've got lots of questions. I'm going to continue on now with a question for Peter. It's from a Dr. Manning, who was a former colleague of Mick at the LSC, who asks, did US post-war foreign policy collapse with Trump? If he was still president and the Republicans controlled both the White House and Capitol Hill, how would he have responded to the Ukraine invasion? would the transatlantic alliance still exist? And I think this is pertinent to ask you because you did emphasise Trump somewhat more as distinctive a president than perhaps in the original contribution. So can I just, I, I missed the very first part of the question, Robin. It's, it's the post-Cold War and not... Did US post-war foreign policy collapse with okay. Trump? So I would argue that in a way, so this is a great question that in a way, the core operating principle that guided, the, at least geopolitically, that guided US foreign policy um, after World War II, so from the post-war period on, was really, I mean, uh, was to ensure that no single power or group of powers gain control of the Eurasian landmass or undue influence. And that's why to just go back to Mick's previous point, you can't say that the US was focused only on Europe. It was focused on Asia as well. And the challenge, especially once you had the, you know, um, the alliance between uh, the Soviet Union and, and China was, you know, to keep it in check and to contain it and so forth. And I think that was kind of the overriding Principle. So with the end of the Cold War, and this really takes us to Carolyn's point, which I, I agree with, that premise, which is really not original with US policymakers, you can bring it all the way back to a former director of the LSE. Everything starts at the LSE, Sir Halford Mackinder, and um, that you need to prevent any single power from gaining control over the Eurasian landmass. And, 
and, um, and that was the cardinal principle of British foreign policy and for a very long time, US foreign policy. With the end of the Cold War, that disappears. And so what we see, and this is what I think Mick is documenting for us, is president after president trying to fill. It's like a, that problem in quotes, Carolyn's point is it never really went away, but from the perspective of American policymakers, that problem did go away. And in my view, the only president since the end of the Cold War that tried to tackle this strategically uh, was Obama actually. And I say that because when Obama moved to, and he tried to do it through unusual means in a sense, uh, actually, I mean, it steals a, a, a page out of the early Cold War. When Obama pushed for TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, at the same time that he pushed for TTIP, the trade relationship with the Transatlantic Investment Partnership with Europe, the idea behind that, the strategic logic behind it was to retether those two regions to the United States, to strengthen it, recognizing that there was, that China was a juggernaut and that China was, as Carolyn pointed out, and, you know, expanding its influence, purchasing ports and so forth in Eurasia. And so the idea was to re-anchor the two ends, I think, strategically. In the case of Trump, we see none of that. And I mean, the question about like Trump and Putin, I mean, my view of this um, is that Putin interpreted Trump and those divisions in the United States as indicating or suggesting that the United States was too bemused by domestic concerns, too focused domestically, to be able to respond. I mean, the strategic calculation, and not just the US, but Western democracies in general, because they're experiencing many of the same things, the division and the fragmentation. The miscalculation was that he thought he could do Ukraine very quickly in blitzkrieg fashion. That was just a massive miscalculation. Okay, thanks very much. And, and now a question I'm going to direct to, to Carol, and it's from Adam Sizu, who's a high school student here in London. We're always very pleased to have um, high school students in our audience, as we often do. Um, Adam Sizu asks, how genuine is the risk that the liberal international order falls? And how different would a world be where Russia and or China was hegemonic? Adam, um, thank you very much for your um, question. Um, when we talk about uh, the liberal international order, I think as both Peter and Mick have pointed out, it's been hugely contested uh, in a shared rebuttal by both uh, China and Russia of the legitimacy of that international order. And indeed one of the features um, one of the shared visions of uh, Russia and China is, an, is, a, is a different reading of the international order of international history and a joint view that that Western international system must be resisted and recast. And 
What Russian scholars have argued for years is that they take a very different view of sovereignty um, to, to Western states, a rejection of the Westphalian um, view of the world. And here's the most interesting feature, I think over the last 10, 12 years of the Russian view of sovereignty is not just um, the obvious rejection of uh, Western intervention in places like Syria for regime change, but two things really. The Russians argue that sovereignty actually rests on a number of different characteristics, not least. Uh, Mr. Putin has made it clear that Russian speaking people remain under Russian, a Russian type of sovereignty. Uh, and the second uh, issue is this difference that international order should be base, based on a shared set of values. And I think that part of the issue that we found since the 1990s with NATO is it became, as did its uh, you know, mandate for membership, it rested on values, not strategy necessarily. And that has brought us into um, an ideological collision um, with Russia and increasingly with China, because values are, shared values simply do not exist. So what I would say is that if there is going to be an international liberal order, the question will be, is there room in it for actors who have different values? And part of, Adam, I think, where we have gone wrong in the post-1991 era, but gone wrong probably for very good reasons, is this insistence that there is only one value system in the world. Now, we might indeed be right uh, with our emphasis on democracy, female human rights, individual rights, but that simply runs up against other types of value systems. So I think it's going to be fraught and it sounds rather grand, but I certainly think that with whatever happens after Putin's war in Ukraine, there needs to be a concerted effort to rethink a reshaping. I'm not talking about necessarily a Versailles, perhaps more likely a Yalta, but some kind of attempt to recast the international system with some um, flexibility away from simply a capitalist American model. And that's probably, uh, Mick will castigate me um, for idealism. But we've got into this war, not just because of Putin's ambition, but also because, I mean, the Putins have been reading Halford Mackinder for years now. It's actually, you know, taught uh, at the Russian Military Academy. And if you look at the work of Alexander Dugan, for example, his theory of a multipolar world, it's pure Halford Mackinder. Okay, thanks very much. Um, I'm gonna do another round of questions, but um, do keep your thoughts about each other's comments because we will we'll come back to that. Um, so now for, for you, Mick, um, it's from mm -hmm. Keith Raffin, who's a former MP and a former MSP. Mm -hmm. um, do you agree that Obama continually sent out the wrong signals, signals of American weakness to Putin by, for example, saying that the use of chemical weapons in Syria would be a red line uh, when that was a line that was crossed and yeah. nothing was done? 
Yeah. And the questionnaire goes on to ask about whether there was underreaction to Russia's invasion of Crimea. Well, I mean, look, as somebody who was a, a very strong supporter of President Obama politically, you know, I, you know, I've got to hold my hands up and say he didn't get everything right. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I, I think he got a lot right, by the way. Let me just say what I think he got right. I think he got the economics right. I think Obama, with his team around him, uh, did an enormous amount of intervention within the economy, within the United States and globally, and particularly in association then with Gordon Brown, you know, to prevent the 19, 2008 becoming a 1930s. I think we, we could have been quite close to that. So let's give him credit for that. I think he was also right, at least in broad philosophical and theoretical terms, to actually understand that the world was actually moving. It was shifting. That the kind of hegemony, to use that phrase, which America had experienced in a different era, maybe in the 1990s, that that was no longer you know, a workable system. That you had to try and work with other powers, even rising powers, sometimes powers that didn't share the same values as the United States to see if you couldn't create some degree of, dare I use the word, international society around which you could group. Now, that may be an idealistic interpretation of Obama. I think, thirdly, I'd also say in favor of Obama, and then I will answer your question, I promise. Um, you know, I think the very election of Obama, an African-American, was hugely symbolic uh, and sent out a message around the world about the nature of America. It was a huge soft power victory for the United States, very simply. And I think that should be recognized right across the world. The global South took to Obama very obviously in ways, of course, they did not later take to Trump for all the reasons we hinted at and many more. But I think the question is a fair one. It's a fair one. He said there will be red lines we will not cross on chemical war, chemical weapons which were used, and he, and he didn't, and, and, and those lines were crossed. And, um, you know, should he have reacted? Well, we know what he did. He tried to make every argument and even use the British Parliament to make sure that the US did not get sucked into to Syria. Um, if, America, if an American president wants to make a decision, he will do it, and clearly he didn't want to do it. And, um, and you could say, therefore, that was a major error. He, he later wrote about this too, and also about the Libyan intervention or non-intervention or leading from behind. Was that a mistake? Uh, probably in hindsight, and hindsight's a wonderful thing, we can obviously say that it was. However, at the time, and here's the context argument, and I know it's a, it's a, it's a bit tricky, but I think the context of the time, I don't think he thought that, that the American people would support any degree of serious US intervention in, into Syria. You know, I, I just generally thought he was looking at, he was looking at public opinion within the United States. That shouldn't always be the determining factor. And I think he concluded that that is not exactly where American people would want him to lead. And moreover, the complexity of the Syrian situation, which I don't even have to be talked about here, was such that it was very difficult to know which side to choose and who to support. And, and it was an extraordinarily complicated situation. But yeah, in, in answer specifically to that point, he should not have said he was those red lines. And when that, you know, that red line was crossed, I think that, uh, that undermined his credibility. I'd also say, secondly, that maybe Obama, if I might put it like this, had maybe a too professorial approach to the study of world politics rather than a politician's approach compared, say, to Clinton. I think in those senses, he's a very different kind of democratic leader. But I suppose, again, I, I'm going to sound like an apologist for Obama, so I just have to go with this for the moment. I think simply the challenges that confronted Obama uh, 
when he came into office were really huge. And I think I would obviously focus on some of the mistakes, some of the achievements, but I'd also focus on the larger world picture in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, yeah? What do you have? You have an unwinnable war in Iraq, which he opposed from day one. And he was actually quite keen to get out of Iraq. He was certainly very keen to get out of Afghanistan. Pressures made it very difficult for him to do so. He faced a possible meltdown in the global economy. Um, And he faced at home, and maybe Peter could talk about this too, he faced a recalcitrant Republican opposition who didn't give him an inch on anything. And facing that kind of opposition, which he did, you know, that's a pretty difficult context for a politician within which to, to operate. So that may sound a little bit soft on Obama. Yes, he made mistakes. Should he have even ignored Russia? Should he have not tried to reset relations? Maybe Caroline could come back on this. He tried to reset that relationship, for which he was highly criticized by the Republican. Was it, one, was it worth one last effort? I think it probably was. Did it work? No, but then quite often initiatives like that don't always work. Okay, thanks very much. So now a question um, for Peter from Andrew Lone, who asks, are Russia's other neighbours in the Baltic and elsewhere right to be nervous for what might come after the invasion of Ukraine? And what might it mean for China and its neighbours? Will Chinese policy of non-intervention and respect for sovereignty continue? Or might Xi's China feel emboldened to use military power to resolve claims against various other states? Those are two big questions. Very good questions. Um, I think uh, quickly on the on the first part of it, on the Baltics, yeah, they should be nervous, but I think, uh, and they are, and they're expressing it. Um, I mean, I, I would say two things. It's it is possible that you know Putin was to kind of, in a sense, gamble for resurrection by expanding the conflict in that way. I worry more when I think about this pro- about this general problem about inadvertent escalation. That NATO makes a mistake. That you know, or that on the other side, um, on on the Russian side, that there's a there, you know, stuff happens and it's very easy for lines to be crossed and where you lose control of it. I mean, look, Putin's got his hands full right now. It seems pretty obvious. And, um, and that this is not match up with the original military planning objectives and so forth. That much I think we, we know is established no matter what Putin says. And so I think the problem is that, you know, the United States and its um, um, and and many of its other European allies need to find ways to reassure those frontline states, without overstepping, without either putting Putin in a position where he feels like his back is to the wall somehow, or if you want, and to assume that he is looking for an opportunity to escalate, to give them an opportunity. So I think that's, and I think that that is what Biden and other leaders have been trying to navigate. And, you know, and so far successfully. In terms of how China is thinking about this and what it might mean, 
Well, I'll be interested in hearing what my colleagues think. I think this is, they're watching this very closely and there's a bunch of different parts of this that they're watching closely. First of all, they almost certainly have concluded the Chinese leadership that Putin miscalculated. Part of the problem may be, as Carolyn alluded to, the Olympic, the discussion at the Olympics between Xi Jinping and, and Putin is that Xi Jinping got himself too damn close to Putin. It's, uh, it's very difficult to push back against the position that, that uh, he took, um, I think, vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, Putin. But just what I think is what maybe have been a surprise. Now, you know, Chinese economy is not the Russian economy. But the extent, the, the ability of Western industrialized democracies to act collectively on the economic front, and especially to demonstrate the value and the power of the dollar through all of this and having the reserve currency has been just, I mean, that has got to have unsettled them or something that they have clearly taken on board. So, um, you know, and I think they're watching closely to see the nature of the Western response over time that would matter perhaps in terms of their own calculations with respect to Taiwan in the future. Okay, thanks very much. So, um, Carolyn, now here's a question from Java Jamil. Carolyn wanted from... to come in on that, on that point. I saw her hand up. Yeah, so I think it's a really interesting question and thank you, Peter. So the pressure on uh, non-NATO members like Finland and Sweden has been intense uh, over many years, actually. And we need only think of the attack on a NATO member in 2007, uh, the massive cyber attack on Estonia. So what Mr. Putin has calculated on is the pressure on Ukraine, not a NATO member, will keep a NATO response muted. But as Peter said, what Mr. Putin has been experimenting with, think of his comments on nuclear use, is escalation to de-escalate, escalate to de-escalate, to raise the bar to lower it. And this, as Peter said, is an extremely dangerous game that is being played. Now, a, an attack on Finland um, would not necessarily, um, as a non-NATO member, spark um, Article 5. However, what has been clearly, I think, signalled uh, to the Russians that Finland, as a very close ally, um, would have at least, um, it should give him pause, <laughs> pause to think, but where NATO is caught is all of the arguments about air power in the west of the country, no-fly zones, as Peter said, these immediately bring about um, the possibility of Western airplanes being shot down, um, of then um, the whole conflict ratcheting up. And I think horrendous though the casualties already are, these attempts at de-escalation, I think, have to be very seriously followed through, both in Ukraine and on the borders. Now, NATO has reinforced um, in Norway, in Estonia, and this is where uh, 
I think the sentiment is no further. Um, and here, the other promise, of course, must be uh, that Ukraine will not join NATO. And just, just as a point, sorry, I'm talking too much. Uh, note also that the Russians have been issuing threats very recently against Denmark um, because of its closer relationship with the US military. And we're all historians here, I think, in many ways. Uh, the Russians have even brought to bear a memo from 1946 in which they claim the Danes promised not to reinforce with foreign troops their islands in the Baltic. Uh, Mr. Putin is desperately, I think, trying to avoid any, any further reinforcement of NATO. But, but Peter's absolutely right. What I think should worry us all is this very dangerous game of nuclear escalation and then de-escalation. Okay, thank you. Um, look, we've got about 10 minutes left. I, I want to try and bring the panellists into dialogue with each other. And let me just try and do that by picking up a theme which a number of you have mentioned and which uh, Mick presented in his initial comments. And that is to say that of his four main arguments, two of them concerned liberalism and hubris. And the general claim was being made that um, there was a sort of hubristic embrace of liberalism and, and other of the panelists have followed that too. And the question I'd like to ask sort of each of you, but if you could try and be concise so we can get in a, a couple of rounds. Sure. I mean, when is, when is mobilising for liberal values hubristic and when is it an appropriate response? Because the paradigm example of hubris was going into Iraq and the general idea is really the conservative one that how can people from a liberal society understand all the tensions in those societies? But in the current conflict in Ukraine, liberal values are clearly being mobilised as part of the sort of effort to create solidarity. Yeah, so yeah. I just would like to ask each of you, starting with Mick, then Peter, then Carolyn, when is it appropriate to mobilise liberal values and when is it actually yeah. hubristic? Thanks. Thanks, Robin. Uh, an impossible question to try and answer. But I'll do my best <laughs> I, I, on the question of Iraq. I, you know, there's been a big debate in the IR community and amongst many of us, hasn't there, Peter, and John Eikenberry and many others, about what kind of war this was. I would actually still say that it was, broadly speaking, a liberal war, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it was fought for certain kinds of values, democracy promotion, regime change, uh, very much an anti-realist war. Indeed, well worth remembering, Robin, that most realists I knew in the United States actually opposed the war, including, by the way, mm -hmm. John Mearsheimer. So I think that that would be my answer. That's not a straight answer to, to your larger question. But I want to bring it really, if I, I'm not trying to avoid your question, but I do want to bring it back to what the point that Caroline made, which I really did want to pick up on, if you don't mind. It does, it does go to the heart of the question about a liberal order. It was pretty obvious pretty early on, a very large number of states within the international system uh, were either A, not liberal, or B, opposed the liberal order. Um, you know, and one of them clearly emerged, certainly by the late 1990s and into the early part of the noughties, namely Russia. Putin made it very clear he didn't buy into liberal values and he didn't buy into uh, an American-dominated liberal order. Uh, China never pretended for one second to buy into this liberal order. And a number of other states around the world and, and, and regions within the world did not buy into the liberal order. 
And, and that was a kind of hubris. Now, I have to say personally, I much prefer the liberal, a broad liberal social democratic order than I do any other on, on offer at the moment, but not all, not all states within the order, in the system, accept that order. And I think that brings up Caroline's point so well on China and Russia. Now, I, I, I'm not going to say I got one thing right in my life in terms of predicting something, but I wrote an article back in 2016, 17, on the China-Russia relationship, which I began to think was a very extraordinarily strong, potentially stable long-term alliance, not just based on power in a realist sense, but based on certain ideas of, against liberalism, against the liberal hegemon, the United States, and against the notion that certain states in the world, like the United States, had almost a kind of a hubristic liberal right to intervene into your internal affairs and change your regime. And I, th I think that relationship between China and Russia, I think, Peter, goes back way beyond the 2002 memorandum as well. I'm sure we don't disagree on that. The 4th of February communique, the 4th of February 2, was an extraordinary communique. Um, and I think it was a statement of intention uh, no limits. I mean, this was really, it had never gone that far before, but you can find them trace back that relationship. And I think that's why I totally go along with what Caroline was saying, that what we're seeing really is not, it's not trying to blame one side or the other. I mean, I'm not sure that's quite what I ask scholars all to be doing, although I have very clear views on the Russia-Ukraine war, don't get me wrong. But I think what we do see now is, is two fundamentally opposed orders emerging. One of, one of which, of course, is clearly rotating around China and Russia, whose relationship is actually, I think, okay, it's problematic, no question about it, as a result of the war, no doubt about it. It's certainly unsettled China for all sorts of reasons. Nonetheless, as you've seen time and again, China's come down on the side of, of, of Russia, won't criticize it, won't. I think that tells us something, that there's something really at the heart of that relationship, which is deep, serious, and long-term, and that's what the fourth or February communique was saying. On the other hand, what we're also seeing on the other side, as a result of the war, and I'll, I'll end my point here now, as a result of the war, in a sense that the liberal order is almost being reconstructed, is it not? You know, a stronger transatlantic relationship, uh, values, it's a war for democracy. The president of Ukraine said, this is a war not just for Ukraine's sovereignty, it's a war for the West. And so in a way, what this war is doing is further pushing apart these two conceptions of order and these two conceptions of order are clashing and will continue to clash with great consequences for the international order, international system going forward. Okay, thanks. Um, if, if we keep it succinct, we'll get in another round and if we don't, we won't. I'll so do yeah. <laughs> Do you want to go to another round or do you want to? No, I want you to respond to so, this, but I'm well, issuing I'll, a general warning and that's the same I, I'll, be, I'll be brief. So for me, um, I think on this question that you've raised, Robin, it's a tough question, but <clears throat> for me, I, I have no beef or I, I think it's a good thing that Western democracies are mobilizing in response yeah. to this blatant, uh, blatant aggression um, that, you know, I know there's deep background conditions, NATO enlargement, there, you know, um, so, uh, Russian revanchism, you know, but I think at the end of the day, this is the kind of thing that the West, Western democracies should push back and they need to be careful about it because this thing 
could become much larger than it is. So there's a there's a, a line there that they need to be careful about. For me, there's no comparison to the US Western intervention in Iraq. I oppose that. To me, that was, you know, um, regime change without any kind of, there was no, it, it, there was no proximate rationale for it. I, I mean, I know all the arguments that have been made around it. And so for me, that's just harder to justify mobilizing and using kind of democracy promotion and so forth in that case. In the case with, with Putin, it seems like, a, you know, it's a, it's a matter of self-preservation and about preserving some basic fundamental principles. The guy overstepped. Yeah. Okay, thanks. And, and Carolyn, I mean, I'm just the same question to you, but could I just make this sort of preface to it? I mean, your comments struck me as being about states and relationships with other states. And that's, of course, what international relations is about. But at some level, international relations is about relations with societies. And to talk about Russia and China as though they have completely different values. How, how right is that? I mean, you yourself mentioned that just a couple of decades ago, there were completely different opinion polls in Russia than the ones there are today. And if we talk about China, well, it's not really China, but Lee Kuan Yew talked about Asian values and how different they were. Kim Dae-jung came along and said, well, hang on a minute, you know, we want these other, these liberal values too. So how are we to embrace, how are we to use that understanding when talking about these emerging blocks and the fundamental difference of values between them? Well, one way um, of thinking about it, and you're entirely correct, is that when we look at what has developed, let's take Russia, and all of the claims spurious or otherwise about um, the close ties with Ukrainian uh, peoples, what you see there is um, Putin using a narrative which undercuts state rights in Ukraine to think about communities and common languages, common heritage, common religions. So of course that narrative is there too beneath the state level. And what has also emerged, of course, in Russia, uh, and it's very difficult to get reliable information, is that Putin's state doesn't rest on any real notion of the people at all. And that's where the leverage lies, it seems to me, um, that Putin's state is a very particular type of um, artificially created political uh, elite, which even now doesn't include much of the military, which is why um, there is such a poor military performance. So you're probably right in that, forgive me if I've been careless with my uh, use of the word state, but if we pull threads on many different states, Mick's done it brilliantly in his book on the United States, but Russia is not one single thing. And I think we've got to be very careful when we're talking about this war, it's Putin's war. Uh, and, and what I would also say here is this war is completely changing um, our notions of war, because I think what's going to be absolutely crucial over the coming days and weeks is who's going to win the battle of the narrative. Um, because these stories we tell each other and ourselves about what the war is about, 
remains absolutely key to support. But but my point would be we need to, you talk, Mick talks about, you know, the United States being hollowed out. Well, Putin's been doing that for over a decade, longer in, in Russia. And this war could be the undoing of him because it is not a Russian war. Thanks very much. Look, we've only got a few minutes left, so I think what I'll do is just ask uh, Professor Cox if he has any uh, last observations he'd like to make, to picking up anything that's been said from, from the colleagues on the panel or, or anything else. I must apologise to the audience. We have an enormous number of questions which we haven't come to, mm. but I do think it might be useful to hear well, at this uh, point from Professor very, Cox. Uh, well, I, uh, thanks for asking me that impossible question, Roy. Um, well... <laughs> What's your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, it's it, look, it's impossible because so many complexities and so many great points. But maybe I'll just make one point, and and it really gets back to this war. And I know people keep saying, "Well, can we talk about something?" Somebody told me the other day, "Can we talk about something else?" I, I don't think we can at the moment. It's not just as Peter and Caroline have said about this could run out of control, and I agree entirely what Caroline has said. This is Putin's war. It's not ordinary Russians' war. They will they have suffered under Putin. Uh, in the same way that Ukrainian people today are suffering under Putin. So let's be absolutely clear about that. Um, but I suppose what worries me most, and, and I suppose this gets back to the title of the book, is not just the agony of, uh, of the United States on its problems, but also the agony of other states within this world system we're living in at the moment. And I think we need to widen that discussion out. Uh, and I think the agony we're now seeing uh, manifested between Russia and Ukraine is, is a genuine agony is a terrible agony. We see it every day on our, on our screens. And I think this, there will have to be, somebody once said, all wars come to an end. You remember many years ago, Peter and Caroline, and this war will have to come to an end at some point. The question is what the terms and the conditions of it will be. And is there any way that we can actually re renegotiate, and I think Caroline was hinting at this, the terms of the relationship between the West, the United States, Russia, and China going into the future. Now, I always remain a little bit of an idealist in this and a hope, an optimist. You've got to retain an optimism in the world because you have to, I think, you know, not, not without, without sound foundation. So I do retain that hope, the possibility of somehow pulling back from where we are. If we don't, then I think we are moving into an extraordinarily dangerous period in the international system and it's not just the end of the post-cold war era i think it's going to open up a whole new world way beyond anything we've seen over the last 30 years and that's my concern and i think knowing the danger the very real catastrophic danger that lies ahead not just in ukraine but elsewhere in the world i think gives us pause for thought pause for reflection and how can we find the diplomacy and the wisdom to pull back from where we are at the moment Look, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of you. We've heard from um, Mick Cox about some of the paradoxes that gave rise to the dilemmas that the United States currently confronts. And we've heard from Carolyn Kennedy Pipe about some of the missed opportunities, particularly between Clinton and Yeltsin, that might have led down a different path. And we've heard from Professor Tubovitz about a sort of core problem in which the end of the Cold War gave rise to difficulties as well as opportunities. 
I think we've heard a wide range of opinions about what might be done in the contemporary environment. So thank you all three very much on behalf of us here at the LSC. Thank you and good night. Good to be with thank you. you very much, everybody. Thank, thank you, you again. Eric. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, everybody. Good to be with you, Caroline. And thank you, Caroline, of course, goes without saying. I'm sorry I didn't see you, Caroline. But you were great. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, all of you. And thanks for listening. And thank you for all the questions as well. That was wonderful. Sorry we couldn't answer them all. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.